A good Tuesday morning to you on this October 19th. This episode of Real Talk is presented by our title sponsors, the team at Bitcoin Well, proudly headquartered out of Edmonton, Alberta. They are planet Earth's first ever Bitcoin ATM company and We're joining those congratulating the team at Bitcoin Well for finding themselves on the third annual business ranking of one of Canada's top growing companies. That one published by the Globe and Mail. Bitcoin Well placing in the upper half. This is a list that celebrates entrepreneurial achievement in the country by IDing and amplifying the success of growth-minded independent business in Canada. You can learn more about how Bitcoin Well makes crypto more understandable with human-to-human conversation by checking them out under the top of the sponsors page on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Anybody else's face hurt from smiling? <laughs> was up until about three o'clock in the morning. Just, just, uh, I, I, well, I mean, I was giggling. Um, I was smiling. I was laughing at times. I was reflecting. I was ruminating. I was speculating. We're going to keep that trend going this morning. And we're excited to have so many of you joining us here live uh, via our YouTube channel. We can already see that a lot of you are streaming us live on the Mixler audio app. And of course, to everybody that's going to be downloading this podcast and checking this out at some point later on this Tuesday or later in this week. Welcome to the show. And it's great to have you here. Albertans went to the polls last night. You probably know. And uh, no matter where you are in Canada, you were probably paying attention and somewhat struck by the results of some of those more prominent electoral races, including the mayoral races in Calgary and in Edmonton. We're excited to have exclusives with the incoming mayors, the mayors elect from both Edmonton and Calgary today. Amarjeet Sohi will be joining me in about seven minutes time. And Dr. Jody Gondek will be joining me in about 45 minutes time. Two first generation Punjabi Canadians elected for the first time as mayors in Alberta's two largest cities in two of the five or six largest cities across the country. This is the first time that a woman has been elected mayor in Calgary's civic history. It's big. There are other implications as well to this election, some shakeups on councils, of course, other jurisdictions represented as well. We know that members of our audience, there are real talkers that were elected to councils last night. Uh, Members of our uh, editorial board that were participating that took tough losses in electoral races last night, shakeups on school boards, referendum questions answered by Albertans. And while we won't have the official results to those referendum questions until next Tuesday, we'll get into the early returns and what they mean. Plus, some drama swirling around the election yesterday. What the hell was going on with the election's Alberta Twitter account? We're going to talk about that today. There's a lot to dig into. You won't want to miss our election analysis panel. They're coming up in about 25 minutes time. Michael Walters uh, decided not to seek re-election as an Edmonton city councilor. He'll join us. Lisa Holmes, you remember Lisa, uh, former mayor of Morinville, former president of the AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, now a political consultant and strategist. 
And then political scientist Dr. Jared Wesley will join us out of the University of Calgary. All three of them in between our conversations with the two mayors. We'll be looking to your comments as well. Uh, submitted to our hashtag. That's Real Talk RJ. And of course, you can hit us up on our live chat. Plus, I want to plug this right out of the gates because we're expecting a big response to this week's edition of our question of the week. It's presented every week by our friends, our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. Alberta's second election in two months is officially in the rearview mirror. Uh, on October 18th, that's yesterday, municipal elections took place across Alberta, and with big changes at the top, the stakes were high. This week, we're asking you to reflect on the outcome of these municipal elections, the surprises, and what you think the future holds. It'll take just two or three minutes to fill out our question of the week, and we appreciate in advance those of you that'll do it. You can find it again on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Most times when you're talking about elections, it's about who won. But sometimes it's also about who lost. And there were some pretty high profile races, some pretty high profile battles going on in both Calgary and Edmonton. When it all boiled down to it, it was Jody Gondek versus Jeremy Farkas. And it was Amarjeet Sohi versus Mike Nichol. And the people had something to say about how they felt about those choices. It was significant victory. When you take a look at the margin of victory in both Calgary and Edmonton, Jody Gondek with more than 172,000 votes in Calgary last night. That represents 45% of ballots cast. Jeremy Farkas, about 60,000 votes behind her with 114,000 and change in 30%. Emerjeet Sohi in Edmonton taking 105, just under 106,000 votes. All of these totals that you're going to hear today are going to be unofficial and subject to change. There's one council race in Edmonton in particular, extremely close right now. And I'm not sure I'd be surprised if we saw a request for a recount as it looks like former Edmonton City Councilor Bev Esslinger fights to keep her seat at the hands of a challenger. Amarjeet Sohi with about 106,000 votes for 45 percent. Mike Nickel with under 60,000 for 25 percent. That's an ass kicking. And I've got a lot to say about Mike Nickel. I know some of you are expecting to hear me go off on Mike Nickel, and quite frankly, I'm going to. But first, we have an opportunity to talk to the man that after a disappointing result in his bid to remain as a member of parliament for the federal liberals in Edmonton, decided to get back on the horse and throw his hat into the ring for mayor. The minute that Amarjeet Sohi declared he was the favorite, and Edmontonians proved last night that that gut instinct was correct. Amarjeet Sohi, mayor-elect for the city of Edmonton, joining us live on this edition of Real Talk. How does it feel to hear your name introduced like that? Well, good morning, Ryan. Uh, absolutely delighted and honored to uh, uh, to earn this uh, this privilege. Absolutely. I am uh, uh, indebted. Uh, my wife is actually she right here. Right here. Uh, <laughs> you're going to say hi to you. Of there course you we do. Good morning. Can she hear me? I don't know if she can hear me, but please extend yeah, our congratulations. Here, here, here you go. Yeah, she can hear you now. Here you go. We're, we're a team here, right? So always been a team. It will always remain a team. This would not have been possible uh, 
with our Serbjit. Absolutely. Uh, well, well, Serbjit, how how was how was the feeling in the house? Uh, not just when you went to bed last night, but when you woke up this morning. I mean, uh, you you are you're the first lady of Edmonton. I mean, this is you know, with this comes great responsibility. The smile on your face is very evident. How are you feeling today? Oh, thank you, thank you, Ryan, and thank you, Edmonton. I was it's it's kind of hard. Like I can't imagine. I can't imagine still. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff. I couldn't be, be more happier than this, and I couldn't be more proud than this. And 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 what proud of proud of Amarjit. Oh, well, I mean, it's it's obviously uh, we know such a huge commitment from families uh, when somebody decides to seek political office. And so congratulations from from our house, so to speak, to your house as well. And, and what a wonderful and beautiful moment last night, uh, Mr. Mayor, elect, uh, to be introduced yes. by your daughter, <laughs> Sirat, yes. as well, who yes, is absolutely. clearly very proud of her dad. She yeah. started she didn't she didn't mess around. Uh, in her introduction, start I mean, started talking about your history. People are talking about your journey. I mean, as a political yeah. prisoner, as an immigrant Canadian, uh, the story from bus driver to public servant, federal minister, back to mayor on the council on which you served previously. I mean, it's, it, none of this is lost on you, I'm sure. Yeah, I was honored. Like, you know, we are very proud. Sarabjit and I are very so proud of uh, Sirat. Uh, and, uh, she, I'm, right? I'm, I'm proud of both of them. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Mums always you know. know. Mums know how to yeah. handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let, let him go now so you can talk to him. It's <laughs> nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Rand. You bet. And thank you, Edmonton again. Amarjeet, that must there have been. There we a, go. A, I, that was I wanted to give you that surprise. Well, listen, <laughs> hey, that that means a lot to us, and and we can't even imagine uh, what it's like, and and I'm sure that there have been many private moments. Uh, yes. But but when you and your wife and 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 maybe you know you, the rest of your family and your tight inner circle gather around those those quiet moments, I'm sure when the house was finally quieting down last night at what three in the morning, something like that. When you woke up for tea or coffee this morning, uh, you realize that it's about time to to get going. Time to put those metaphorical boots on. The work starts today, doesn't it? Absolutely, I would say the work started last night. Uh, in my acceptance speech, I talked about. Uh, the work that we need to do together to help grow our economy, create opportunities for Edmontonians, the work that we need to do on reconciliation with the indigenous communities, the work we need to do on ending racism and discrimination, uh, and how we recover from this COVID and kind of leadership and partnership that we need for our regional partners with the provincial and federal government. So work started last night and continue. And uh, today uh, I, I've been doing media interviews and after this, uh, I'll probably take uh, a little nap uh, after I'm done, then uh, uh, then start making phone calls to uh, uh, to the council members who uh, have been elected and, uh, you know, start building a stronger relationship with them. Because local governance is about collaboration. Without collaboration, we cannot be successful. And uh, that's where it's going to start. It's, uh, it's a, a dramatically different looking Edmonton Council. I remember after the 2017 municipal election speaking with councillors Sarah Hamilton and Bev Esslinger, who were, who were both, quite frankly, discouraged at the lack of gender parity on that council with just two women councillors. Edmontonians sending eight of 12 mm -hmm. uh, female councillors to City Hall today. 
uh, and uh, and a first generation uh, Canadian, uh, a, a, an immigrant, a Punjabi man, a, a, a first generation Punjabi woman as the mayor in Calgary. I mean, what message did Albertans send yesterday and to whom? I think uh, Albertans are sending a strong message to the rest of the province and to each other as well, that we are diverse people that we come from different perspectives and we have different uh, ways of tackling issues and our diversity should be celebrated. And for too long, uh, Ryan, I think, uh, uh, and I think I, I always believed in diversity and inclusion and uh, for too long, uh, diverse voices have not been on the table. Women, indigenous, racialized uh, Edmontonians and Albertans have felt uh, that their voices were not included. And this is this is a phenomenal, phenomenal outcome. I think Alberta will be better because of this. Our city and Calgary and everyone else will be better because of this. Uh, because you know, diversity is not just a wishy-washy thing. People think that you know, when you have a, a, your city being reflected in institutions, absolutely is a powerful image. But diversity means people bringing their real lived experience. The things how they tackle problems and that perspective and then clashing of those ideas in a constructive way allows us to be more innovative, allows us to be more creative and allow us to look at different ways of tackling these issues. And we have some very daunting challenges in front of us. And we talked about those challenges during the campaign. So I'm really, I am absolutely pleased the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the new council and I'm looking forward to, uh, to working with them. Uh, did the Prime Minister get in touch with you last night? And if so, what did he say? Uh, I haven't heard from the Prime Minister yet, uh, but I've been getting a lot of private messages from my uh, uh, former colleagues and the staff members that I worked with. Uh, I had a lovely message from uh, uh, Minister Freeland during, uh, during the, not, not since the election, but the, yesterday, uh, during the daytime, she called to uh, wish me all the best. Uh, she's a very personal good friend of mine and uh, look forward to working with her and Prime Minister and uh, and the rest of my former colleagues. Uh, you know, I think this is an exciting time. I think, uh, I believe that when we work together, when we put, when we put public interest forefront, when we put, think about serving people and making people's life easy, uh, and uh, don't think through the lens of politics that we all make good decisions. So I'm going to bring my collaborative leadership to build a stronger relationship with the regional partners, with the provincial government and the federal government. And I think uh, I am also excited, Ryan, about the potential of uh, Alberta mayors from big cities to mid-sized cities working together. And I think I have a unique experience and skills that, that I can use uh, not only to uh, bring us together to have a better relationship with the provincial government, maybe assist uh, uh, Alberta municipalities in having a better relationship with the federal government. You know, it's uh, it's going to be uh, surprising to no one that you're keeping it classy. Uh, it's one of the things that you do and you say you'd love to see things, you know, removed from the lens of politics. The fact of the matter is that this is an extremely partisan provincial government. Uh, people are saying mm -hmm. that this current premier governs in a way that not many people have seen, including right wing conservatives. And it makes it very difficult to deal uh, with Jason Kenney he prefers to scrap 
He prefers to fight as opposed to collaborate. At the same time, people are assuming that your win in Edmonton, uh, including congratulations, for example, from I saw Alberta MP, Edmonton Liberal MP Randy Boisno reaching out to you last night. People are saying, hey, listen, it's important for Alberta, for, for the federal liberals to have a couple of footprints in the province of Alberta for a couple of obvious reasons. So how does this all factor in to these very real challenges we know that Edmonton faces, that the province faces with regards to COVID recovery, uh, with regards to an energy transition and so many other things? If you have a hostile provincial government and a federal government that could potentially be friendly and quite frankly, even be looking for proof that they don't have an axe to grind with the province of Alberta. You know, I have always put Edmonton first. And I will continue to put Edmonton first. I see a lot of potential us working directly with federal government on economic growth opportunities, on tackling climate change, because uh, federal government has set a goal of being net zero by 2050. And if uh, that is a serious goal, which I believe is a serious goal, uh, then the emissions are in Alberta. Uh, and how do we reduce those emissions? I think there are opportunities that the federal government can help us uh, reduce those emissions as well as uh, the uh, uh, build a more sustainable community. I look at carbon capture storage and utilization, for example. There's a huge potential. I see huge potential in hydrogen uh, working directly with the federal government. I see huge potential through uh, the local regional uh, development agencies like Western Economic Diversification, now it's called Very Can, uh, that can support innovation, that can support the development of new ideas. Uh, I see a lot of potential us directly working with federal government on uh, uh, on the uh, uh, through small businesses uh, uh, portfolio. So I think there's so much potential there is that uh, that I'm going to work hard to tap into. Uh, you were you were clear last night. Uh, you, you said I know that. I was not everybody's first choice. And you mm -hmm. specifically spoke to people that didn't vote for you. Um, it was in direct contrast uh, to comments made by uh, mayoral hopeful Mike Nickel, who you handily defeated last night, who essentially said that people that didn't vote for him are going to have a tough morning today. It's strange. I don't feel that way. As a matter of fact, Amarjeet, I woke up with a smile smeared across my face. But Mike Nickel warned us that we're uh, set for a world of hurt. Direct contrast in how you spoke to those that voted against you. Why would you take that position? And what would you like to say to people who didn't choose Amarjeet Sohi for the mayor of Edmonton? Uh, Ryan, you and uh, your uh, people who are watching this uh, podcast know my history. I came to this city with nothing. Uh, Sarbjeet and I built our life here. We struggled absolutely like so many other Edmontonians. We struggled to make ends meet. We lived on modest income. We had to make tough choices. Uh, but despite that, this is a community that propelled me to live up to my fullest potential and for my family to live up to our fullest potential. And all Edmontonians contributed to that, even those who may not have embraced my vision. So it is, is, I feel it's a fundamental responsibility uh, of me and mayor's office uh, uh, under my leadership to reach out to them and tell them, it's okay, if you did not vote for me, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we are all Edmontonians and I'm going to be mayor for everyone. We're going to work together to heal those, uh, 
those divisions and bring people together because the more we work together the better results we will produce for our uh, our city yes in during campaigns things happen people take stance and they try to uh, uh, you know stoke fear and all that right but uh, we are behind that now you know that was the day before yesterday uh, uh, today's a new day and today's a new day of working together Mr. Mayor-elect, I'll ask you to pardon my French in advance, but I want to read this comment with accuracy. Jillian is watching. She says, I fucking love that the dude who drove a bus in the city now runs the city. She says, it's the best thing ever. What would you like to say to Jillian? Well, thank you, Jillian. I think I did a superb job of driving the bus. I still run into uh, <laughs> some of my former uh, passengers who, uh, who, uh, who, uh, for whom I stopped when I see them running for the bus, right? <laughs> so, you know, if I, I think I've done a good job being a bus driver, I think I'll do a good job being a mayor as well. <laughs> Does this send a message? I saw it. <laughs> I just want to let you enjoy that for a second. Sometimes you got to just let a guy laugh. I did a lot of laughing myself last night. I got to be honest with you. I didn't even run in this election and I felt like I won last night. I can't even imagine how you feel. You know, I saw a lot of people saying um, and, and I almost feel. Can I be honest, Amber G? We've known each other for a long time. Um, yeah. And 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 this will probably be the last time that I don't just call you Mr. Mayor all the time. Uh, you used to give me hell back in the day for calling you minister. You'll remember that. Uh, but yeah. but the title matters. Um, you know, I, I, I almost feel tacky coming back to the fact that both you and the mayor elect down in Calgary are first generation Canadians, that you're both people of color, that you're both Punjabi Canadians. And I was retweeting. If people want to see it, they can just check out my Twitter profile last night, retweeting comment after comment after comment after comment from people of color, in particular, Amarjeet, they were women of color. And they were talking about what a message these election results sent to the rest of Canada. Now, on the flip note, yeah. I won't spend too much time on it. A pretty prominent columnist took issue with that. Jen Gerson kind of smacked Albertans down a little bit last night, said she thought it was weird that Albertans are so obsessed about how their election results may or may not speak to their fellow Canadians in Toronto or Montreal. Do you think that Alberta sent a message to the rest of Canada last night? You know, I spent four years uh, under uh, my role as a minister and I got a chance to visit uh, uh, Canada from coast to coast to coast. Uh, in some circles, Alberta's image beyond Alberta is not properly understood and not properly appreciated. I think the results of this election by having uh, people from people of color from different perspectives being elected to uh, lead to major cities and the number of women being elected to uh, uh, provide leadership is going to help us change that perspective. It is not a majority of Canadians, it's a small minority, but it's a very reinforced image out there. Right? And, uh, and that's one thing. But diversity, regardless of how diverse you are, more diversity is always beneficial. Because diversity is not just about uh, a color. It is, it is also about experience. It is also about different perspectives. It is about lived experience that people bring to the decision-making table. It is also about 
the what people see in public institutions. I want my daughter and other young women to be inspired by eight women who got elected to city council. Right? I think that is what it is. It is seeing yourself being reflected in the institutions that are supposed to be leading and providing a direction for the future of your city. We knew that we'd see new mayors in all five of Alberta's largest cities, uh, not just because people were predicting defeats, but because incumbents weren't running. And so we've got a new mayor in Red Deer this morning. We've got a new mayor in Lethbridge this morning, the RM of Wood Buffalo and Fort McMurray. They've got a new mayor, as is the story in Calgary and Edmonton. But there was there was a, a real trend last night, not just in scenarios when incumbents weren't running uh, Four incumbent counselors in the city of Edmonton lost their seats last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, if those results hold up with Councillor Esslinger, you, you've got John Zadek, Tony Katarina, who got smoked last night. Didn't he, didn't even finish in the top four in his riding. He got smoked. Bev Esslinger and Mo Banga all sent packing. Now, I know that every campaign has internal polling. I assume that yours was limited to the mayoral race. But in any context, did you see that coming? It was hard to know that, Ryan, because we were focused on on our campaign. But I would say that uh, whoever steps up to serve uh, the public and step up to uh, run for office needs to be admired and appreciated. Uh, it is not an easy task. Uh, I know uh, losing hurts. I've been there. Uh, I lost my election in 2004 and I lost... Uh, badly in 2019 so i know how it feels so uh, you know uh, my uh, my appreciation uh, to all the uh, all the council members who did not get elected and uh, those who stepped up the first time and did not get elected uh, as i did stepped up first time and did not get elected so uh, you know i uh, i i think uh, uh, edmontonians uh, uh, elect their uh, representative based on the direction they want to want their city to go into in this election, people were looking for more forward-thinking council. People were looking for more collaborative approach to uh, to governance uh, and, and a group that can work together. And that's uh, the uh, that's what people have decided uh, uh, to go forward on. Uh, we'll ask you this in closing. I know you've got an extremely busy morning and we so greatly valuable your, your availability. We appreciate you granting us this first interview. Uh, we know that you and uh, outgoing Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson, I know a friend of yours, will be making yourselves available to the media uh, around mm-hmm. one o'clock this afternoon and he'll officially welcome you to City Hall and there will be some pomp and circumstance. Uh, but when it all comes down to it, politicians get down to business. Jason Kenney did it with Bill One when he first got to the Alberta legislature. You look at American President Joe Biden had those 12 presidential orders ready to go on his first day right after the inauguration. What's the very first order of business? And I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, like something fun or I'm not I'm with with something you're going to seek sink your teeth into. What's your very first order of business as mayor of Edmonton? Obviously, building a stronger relationship with the uh, uh, council members because uh, collaboration is key uh, to uh, to local decision making. Uh, so I'm going to be spending a lot of time getting to know new council members, have an open, transparent, and uh, and a strong working relationship with them. Uh, COVID is absolutely on so many people's mind, and we need to continue to provide strong leadership from the city and also demand stronger. Uh, leadership from the provincial government, 
then we're going to get into budget. Uh, budget is eminently coming up right away. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a significant budget, uh, both capital and operational. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, rolling up our sleeves, uh, all of us together. Uh, and I, I'm, uh, So those are the things that we would have to tackle. And uh, Edmontonians expect us to continue to provide quality public services at an affordable uh, tax uh, tax rate and user fees. And that's uh, what we're going to going to do, do and try to deliver on their expectations. Uh, uh, governance is a, it's a, it, it's, it's a collaborative process, right? I mean, particularly at the local level. So investing time in building relationships has been key for my success. And that's where I'm going to be investing a lot of time. In. This is, of course, just a follow up to my final question. Technically, still my final question. You were painted <laughs> and portrayed as the tax and spend guy, right? As the big spending, high taxing liberal. Uh, by by your closest competitor in this mayoral race, when it comes to putting that budget together, do you have something to prove to Edmontonians that 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 that's not your quick fix? You know, I have always taken a very thoughtful approach to budgeting. Uh, Sarbjeet and I struggled a lot to make ends meet. Uh, you know, we had to make tough choices in our life. Every dollar mattered to us, and we had to stretch every dollar. Uh, uh, to make sure that we are prioritizing where that dollar need to go. So that's the kind of a discipline and a thoughtful approach I will bring to budgeting. Budgeting is not about slash and burn. Budgeting is about prioritizing and putting money where Edmontonians can get the best results. People want quality public services from public transit to rec centers, to libraries, to snow removal, to fire service, to protective services. They want us to continue to invest in social programs to help people get better and heal. Right? So that is the kind of uh, leadership that is necessary to, uh, uh, to undertake the budgeting process. And we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to undertake a review, absolutely. Uh, seek efficiencies and uh, uh, stretch those dollars. Uh, and we're going to create that balance. And uh, under my leadership, as I promised uh, during the campaign, uh, property taxes and user fees will always remain well, well below the rate of inflation if we have to raise them. Our goal would not be, right, absolutely. And we uh, uh, do, will be to remain, clo- uh, remain close to 0% if we, if we can do that. But we cannot do that at the cost of services and amenities that Edmontonians rely on. Amarjeet Sohi. He's the next mayor of Edmonton. Congratulations. I, I, I want to say I called it on the show because I did. But I think that there was a little bit more to it than that. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Uh, lovely to see you all. You bet. Coming up in just a moment, our uh, political panel. We'll talk to uh, former AUMA president, former mayor of Morinville, Lisa Holmes. We'll talk to political scientist uh, Dr. Jared Wesley and uh, Edmonton City Councilor, uh, technically right up, I guess, until last night, although he probably sells to sign a few papers. Michael Walters, we'll ask him that in just a moment. I want to remind you that our good friends at Eden Landscaping right now, they don't they don't just take off their boots and kick up their feet in the winter. Maybe Maybe you missed out on getting your deck built or that gazebo put in this summer. Maybe you're looking for a a roof on your deck to to protect your barbecuing in the middle of January. I mean, these are the projects they're talking about right now. What about one of those three-season rooms that are all the rage right now? A perfect addition to your home. You know, there's some outdoor construction that can be completed over the winter. You can start it right now by checking out landscapeedmonton.ca. Get in touch with our friends at Eden Landscaping. Make sure you let them know you heard about them on Real Talk. Also want to remind you that our friends at Local Waste, boy, we're going to have a lot to talk about, aren't we? When it comes to 
trash talk this Friday. You can send us an email to get whatever you need off your chest to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You label it trash talk. It's presented by the team at Local Waste that's been keeping it local in Alberta and Saskatchewan for more than a quarter century. Still family owned construction, commercial, residential waste and recycling collection. Maybe you have a big job this fall. Maybe it's a yard cleanup. Maybe it's a basement purge. There's a bin that can fit for you. And if you're a business owner, it's looking for a better deal with your waste management provider. Take a look at localwaste.ca. Ask for Mikel, Lauren, or Chris, and you let them know you heard about them right here on the show. Finally, our friends at Grand Dog Essentials are getting ready this week to make those door stop deliveries like they do every week in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. Our dogs, Moses and Monroe, eat Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food. When you go to their website, granddog.ca, you can check out all the products that they've got, including the cooked stuff. That's what we just switched Moses to. Easier on his guts. And the supplements. Lipped muscle oil, joint and mobility support, natural digestive enzymes, raw fermented goat milk. What's that all about? You can ask them questions. They've got a team of nutritionists ready to Take your questions and process your order. Don't forget the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first-time order. All right, Calgary's next mayor is set to join us in 10, 15 minutes' time, so let's get to our panel. We're grateful that outgoing Edmonton City Councilor Michael Walters, political scientist Dr. Jared Wesley, and political consultant Lisa Holmes, former mayor of Morinville, former president of the AUMA, have agreed to join us uh, this morning. Welcome to the three of you. Uh, Lisa, uh, I mean, significant results last night in so many different contexts. I feel like I don't even know where to start, but but I think it makes sense uh, to start with the new look of Edmonton's council, including eight of 12 councillors, women. The same story down in Medicine Hat, by the way, six of nine councillors, women. There, a lot of people are saying this is a real encouragement for the many people that have been working on encouraging women to run and working on parity when it comes to the makeup of councils. Where are you at in that context this morning? I'm ecstatic over the results in Edmonton. I think that that, uh, that set the stage for what we're seeing across the province. Um, I mean, we, we also saw, uh, like you said, Medicine Hat had a great, uh, I think it was 67%. Um, the city of St. Albert uh, is over 50% as well. So on, a, on the mid-sized city, aside from Edmonton and Calgary, I just have to give them a shout out because the UN standard for the, the minimum representation that they'd like to see in a city council or a, a municipal council is 30% women. And uh, across the board, I think we saw it around 35% this time, which is a, an increase from last time and very exciting. Uh, Michael Walters, how are you feeling this right. morning, my man? You, you decided not to seek re-election. You didn't lose an election. You decided you didn't want to go again. And I know a lot of people are excited to see what you're going to do. Four of your former former council colleagues, five, if you include Mike Nickel, sent packing by voters last mm-hmm. night. Dramatic turnover when it comes to Edmonton's council. Did you see that one coming? Uh, not really, although I did suspect the people who lost were vulnerable. Uh, so if I was if you were to say pick some of your colleagues that might go down, I would have probably picked those ones. Uh, it is interesting that the sort of on the conservative side of of the sort of spectrum, those are the the councillors that that went down during a time of uh, what gets described over and over as economic anxiety. And you'd think that uh, voters would look to them for sort of a steady financial uh, a hand on the wheel, but 
I guess not. I think that this pandemic has showed who we are as a community and we want to be a lot more inclusive and, and supportive of our, of our friends and neighbors uh, in, in addressing it. So, but I'm grateful. I'm, you know, not nearly as hungover as I was the last two elections. I'm not hungover at all, actually. So it's a market improvement over the last two elections. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of uh, it, it, it's, it's very few times, uh, I think, in life that you're disappointed to wake up not hungover. Uh, but I know that the, yeah. the, these victory parties are always ones that people look forward to. And it was certainly a quiet night last night for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Wesley, you've been on the show before in the context of someone who's who's lived and 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 completed schooling in the city of Edmonton. You're a political scientist out of the University of Calgary right now. Obviously, I would imagine that like many other people, you were keeping an eye on 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 multiple races last night. What really jumped out at you as some of the more significant storylines last night? I'm actually uh, at the University of Alberta right now, but I did oh, my pardon. PhD at Calgary, right. so I can, I, I'll take credit for that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, you know, we can say that this is positive and we're hearing a lot of positive vibes coming out from progressives um, on the day after the election. Um, I'm, we had a poll in the field a couple of weeks before the election. I'm not so sure that the mood was all positive. I think that there were a lot of, uh, there's a lot of negativity heading into this campaign. And as we've seen in previous provincial elections, um, Albertans tend to vote against more than they vote for. And I think that's going to be a big challenge for those people, those folks that were elected is that many of them were elected because the alternative wasn't seen as being particularly appealing. And one of the big indicators for me in that is that uh, Albertans are still angry uh, at Ottawa, right? And according to early results in the referendum on equalization, the yes side uh, is is in the lead. We still have to count um, ballots here in Edmonton, um, but it's unlikely that there's gonna be enough ballots in Edmonton to turn the tide and the yes side is probably gonna win. That sends an interesting message to the rest of Canada. I know um, our new mayor-elect uh, here at Amarjeet Sohi just mentioned that Alberta Albertans have chosen to put a new face on the province for the rest of the country to see. Well, this is part of the old face. I think that, um, you know, there, there's still a lot of people that feel alienated, that feel left behind, and it doesn't matter what part of the spectrum you're on, you're going to be challenged with bringing those folks back into the mainstream. Uh, Lisa, you've you've got a ton of experience. I mean, both as a, as a former mayor, uh, certainly now as as a political consultant, and uh, you know, but as president of the AUMA, and in gleaning a real understanding of how the different levels of government can work together or not uh, for the benefit or, or detriment uh, of citizens. When it comes to these new councils, when it comes to these new mayors. And when it comes to actually getting work done, can, can you give us a perspective for people that have not served in the halls of power of what that challenge looks like and, and how it begins effectively? Well, there's definitely a, a huge learning curve. Um, if you haven't been elected to council before and you were elected mayor, the learning curve is even larger. And I think that that, that will affect not just the work of your municipality as well, but um, municipal work that's being done on a regional level. And that's something that is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, I know in the Edmonton metropolitan region, out of the 13 mayors sitting around the table, seven are going to be new. And so it's going to be really important for the, the incumbent mayors, the ones who have served before, the ones who have been on council through AUMA at the convention in November, or just at the meetings that they're having to, to be mentors to these new mayors, to be able to explain what uh, what things are happening and what projects are ongoing, because time doesn't stop and, and they need to move forward on a lot of these large scale projects um, to ensure that they can keep up with the pace of the rest of the country. And as well, I think that we're going to have to see a, a big impact on the, the way that municipal governments work 
the provincial government in the next few years. And that's something that I think a new reflective council will be able to uh, to come up with a new relationship. So having some new members on your council might be great for that purpose alone. Michael, when, when it comes to, you know, I mean, how councils gel together and how councils work together based on your experience as a counselor and, and based on what you know about some of the candidates that won last night that'll be coming in for the first time. How difficult is it for a new mayor to get a, a, a roster of relatively new councillors to gel. I mean, what does Amarjeet Sohi have to do here? What does Jody Gondek? We're going to talk to her in just a couple of minutes. What does she have to do in Calgary? Right off the hop. Uh, relationship building, relationship building, relationship building. You, you know, all these counselors put a lot of their passion, heart and soul in their brochures and went around and handed it out to, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people and feel really committed to what they uh, proposed uh, that got them elected. So I think understanding their interests, you know, they're, there are now people who are going to want to prove themselves uh, to their constituents and going to want to deliver on some of the things that they promise. So I think a mayor whose staff is able to build, and particularly the staff, you know, the mayor is, you know, sort of a dancing bear in a lot of ways. He's got to be here and there and everywhere. And it's hard to do a lot of that groundwork and hiring staff that's committed to building a good relationship with your council uh, is really important. And just just to pick up on what Lisa was talking about in terms of the, the reset with the province, you know, one of the things that's going to be interesting with this group is there's a, a couple people at least uh, that got elected uh, partly on a platform of standing up to Jason Kenney. Uh, and whatever that means at the municipal level uh, is a bit of a mystery to me. It's kind of like, you know, you know, uh, my kids standing up to me without a lot of financial power or, or uh, legislative power in, in, a, in a household, right? Like it's the unfortunate reality of the provincial municipal relationship, which hasn't changed overnight. That structural uh, deficit for municipalities still exists. It's gonna take a lot of creativity and, and I don't think bluster is the way forward on that. It's gonna, there's gonna have to be, uh, yeah, I don't actually know what that reset is after eight years of trying uh, with both the New Democrats and the, and the UCP uh, they have power over us as municipal leaders, and that's the that's the challenge that they have to overcome. So we'll see if uh, Mayor Alexo he's going to be able to settle down some of that that sort of you know big talk about standing up to Kenny uh, and and create a team that can you know I think work with the broader community, uh, the business community in particular in this context to advance two or three important agenda items for Edmonton that. You know, when we walked out the door, we left our administration with a strat with a focus to find some common ground at the administrative level. You know, we have Andre Corbo, who's the city manager, who comes from the province uh, and has enormous amounts of relationship and respect over there. So that could be that could be the pathway in for a new relationship. Uh, Dr. Wesley, and, and I'll apologize to all three of you. I mean, I look forward to you had all committed to a longer uh, availability here, and we'll look forward to future conversations. Uh, Mayor-elect Gondek uh, is is going to be able to join us on a relatively short window here, so so we'll, we'll be wrapping up here. But, but Dr. Wesley, I know you've done a, t a ton of work uh, along with other colleagues across Alberta trying to better understand this referendum question and what it means, in particular that equalization referendum. We won't have final results until next Tuesday, uh, but early numbers show that, that about 50 
58 percent of Albertans said yes. They, they think that Ottawa should remove, uh, you know, Section 36.2 out of the Constitution Act, essentially equalization. They don't think Alberta is getting a fair deal in layperson's terms. Fifty eight percent. I speculated yesterday on the show. I thought that it might be 68 percent. But let's be honest. A few months ago, people were expecting that to be 85 or 90 percent. So though it is a majority decision, or at least it looks like it's trending in that direction, what do you read into a relatively low yes count at 58%? Well, that and a relatively low turnout. We haven't seen the province-wide turnout figures, but it's not likely to eclipse 40%. I mean, I'm I'm looking at that number. It's remarkable. 42% of Albertans voted in favor of equalization. Premier's popularity rating is in low 20s. We now live in an Alberta where the premier of Alberta is less popular than equalization. If you read something, read something <laughs> into this election result, which is incredible. I think just just to tee up your conversation with uh, with Premier-elect Gondek, um, there are a lot of people that voted for her in Calgary, but also, if the numbers are right, also voted yes in the equalization referendum. And here's a big reminder to folks. I'm not making the case for her, but I'm making the case about her. She probably wouldn't be here without equalization. She grew up in a in, in a small city in Manitoba, about 30 miles down the road from me. She was high school, she went to high school in Brandon, Manitoba. She did her university education at the University of Manitoba, like I did. Um, equalization is a key element of keeping provinces like Manitoba uh, in a position to offer high levels of public service without breaking the bank in terms of taxes. Her family might not well have moved to Manitoba to begin with. They might have been like many Canadian, like many immigrants and moved to Toronto and never seen the Western part of Canada, but they made that choice because it was available to them because equalization keeps provinces like Manitoba in a position to feed the rest of the country, in particular Alberta, with the talent that we're now seeing on display in the mayor's office. So I'd remind folks as we go into these discussions about what a fair deal means and what equalization really means. I mean, Jody Gondek is a perfect example of what equalization can produce and why Alberta benefits from it. That will be my first question. I appreciate it very much, Dr. Jared Wesley, though I totally blew it earlier, completed his PhD in Calgary and is now at the U of A. I knew it was one and the other. I'll remember that for next time. Michael Walters, an amazing job as a public servant uh, now. We'll all keep a keen eye on what you're up next to, uh, Michael. And, of course, uh, Lisa Holmes, kind enough to join us in transit today from the airport. The former mayor of Morinville now doing awesome work as a political consultant and strategist. Thanks to the three of you. Have a great rest of your week. Yeah, nice to see all of you. Mayor-elect Dr. Jody Gondek will be joining us in uh, literally one minute. Uh, I wanted to take a second to remind you right now that As an Albertan, you have the choice uh, wherever you want to get your Internet, electricity or natural gas. It's up to you. It's a free and open market. You know that. So why not support the local utilities provider that supports this show? Park Power, their entire team was on board with Real Talk from the moment that we launched. And at parkpower.ca right now, they want to buy you dinner. That's right. The promo code 2021-REALTALK. When you take your business over to them means that they're going to take 70 bucks off your first bill. That's right. Whether whether it's a, a residential or a commercial account, no matter what, 
no strings attached, $70 off your first bill when you switch over to Park Power at parkpower.ca with the promo code 2021-REALTALK. It's never been easier. They do all the work for you. You don't have to break up with your current utilities provider. They'll handle it for you. You can ghost the old guys and start saving money. Check out the variable rates and the fixed rates. Right now, the experts are saying it's time to go fixed at parkpower.ca. Also want to remind you that our friends at Kubi Energy, there's some nice overlap here. I was talking to Chris at Park Power a while ago. He said, you know, we have a program that allows people that can plug back into the grid with their solar panels, a specific program for them. It's something worth asking about. Kubi Energy's been installing net zero applications, sustainable energy solutions for years now. They've got a great track record. They're Tesla certified. All of their installers are either journeyman electricians or electrical apprentices. All of their work guaranteed. You can learn more and get a free quote for residential and commercial solar power systems today at kubienergy.ca. Well, last night, voters in Calgary turned out more than 172,000 of them to vote for her as their next mayor in Calgary's history. There's never been a woman elected mayor until last night. Dr. Jody Gondek, the next mayor of Calgary, Calgary's mayor elect, kind enough to grant us an interview this morning. Thank you so much. Congratulations on last night. How are you feeling today? Elated, uh, tired, uh, but very, very happy. Thanks so much for having me on. We're grateful to have you here. We know that it's uh, going to be a wildly busy day for you, and and the work will will just begin. Uh, Dr. Jared Wesley, political scientist uh, out of the University of Alberta, he's an alum of the University of Calgary. Um, he said, you know, he said it's interesting. Uh, on the ballot last night, this equalization question, this referendum question, he said there's kind of a direct tie, there's a direct line to Dr. Gondek. He talked to us just a tiny little bit about your time in Manitoba, and he said, I wonder if Jody Gondek would even be here without equalization. How would you process that? You know, it's it's interesting having come from a province that was in such a downturn economy for so very long. Um, I left Manitoba and came to Alberta looking for opportunity that I didn't have there. So, I mean, it is a testament that Alberta had a booming economy. But, you know, the time that I've lived here, I've been happy to pay my fair share of income taxes. And, uh, you know, the equalization formula that we have that helps other provinces is something that has been crafted over time um, in part by Premier Kenny himself. So, yeah, equalization is something that um, is needed to make sure we lift everyone up. And I was a beneficiary and, and I have been one contributing to it as well. Uh, I was I was reminiscing a little bit about uh, hosting a radio show during following the 2017 elections. And I, and I remember specifically talking to Edmonton's two female counselors at that time. Uh, and, and quite frankly, uh, I mean, they didn't hide their disappointment that there were two women that were going to sit on a, on a 12 seat council in the city of Edmonton. You contrast that to last night uh, and you take a look at across the province. Uh, there are storylines uh, of great interest to people, not just in Alberta, including the number of women uh, that successfully ran for seats on, on city councils, in your case, uh, for the mayor's chair, uh, as well as school boards, uh, school trustees and, and others. Uh, there's also, of course, the obvious reality that I've seen people talking about literally across Canada right now, 
that Alberta's two largest cities, two of the five or six biggest cities in the country, uh, now see mayors that are first-generation Canadians, both Punjabi Canadians. Obviously, this is not lost on you. What does that mean to you personally? For me personally, it means that all of the hard work that I've done has paid off. I spent a great amount of time volunteering in my community. I gained professional expertise. I went back and got an education in city building. And along that accidental journey, I realized that um, the ability to take a seat at the table and serve Calgarians would be amazing. And so I'm, I'm very happy that I'm well prepared for this. I do have to say probably the best message we've sent is that it is perfectly normal for women and people of color to take on leadership positions. So I, I hope we can move past that now. Yeah, uh, Fatima. And can I just say, you and I have always kept it real in conversation. For me, it, I actually feel a little awkward asking some of these questions because there's so much more to talk about. And that's not necessarily what your campaign was about. But I think it res. I know it resonates. I mean, Fatima, for an example, I just look at our live chat right now. It's the first comment I see. I didn't go digging for this one. I didn't go searching for this. She says, many will say, I don't see color. But here, watching Dr. Gondek, her skin color matters so much. Kids and girls growing up in Alberta who feel marginalized and different, it matters, she says. Well, she's given me goosebumps right now. And, you know, I know you have to ask these questions and I understand them, but it's it's taken me some time to process exactly what this means. And I, it's heavy. This is a very um, heavy responsibility that I have. Um, I'm ready to take it on, but it's um, it's incredible. I, I just feel so happy today. Uh, when it all broke down last night, uh, I mean, you were declared mayor, uh, de- depending on which channel people were watching pretty early in the evening. And quite frankly, the race wasn't all that close. Uh, you secured more than 172,000 votes. The next closest candidate, uh, Jeremy Farkas, your former colleague on council with 114,000. You beat him by 15 percent. That's a decisive victory. Was that consistent with what your team's internal polling was showing the entire time. Did you have a pretty strong confidence? And, and not just, come, don't give us these throwaway answers, every politician, it, really. How did you feel yesterday morning? Did you know you were going to win? I felt calm yesterday morning and I felt at peace. Um, and that's the truth. I, I remember talking to my mom, my husband, my kiddo, and they all said the same thing, you know, like we all feel fairly peaceful. Um, and it's because we did the work. We did the work that had to be done. And we knew that no matter what, we had accomplished the task of engaging Calgarians. And it was over the last six or eight weeks that I would talk to people just randomly in the grocery store, um, you know, pumping gas, whatever it happened to be. And they'd say, hey, I know you. Um, I'm going to vote for you. Or they would say, tell me why I should vote for you. People became more engaged. And as they became more engaged and learned about why it was important to vote, I had given them a reason to vote. So it it was nice. You have been um, outspoken uh, with regards to, you know, how you feel about the job performance of this provincial government. Uh, you've not hesitated to invoke the premier's name in some pretty direct uh, tweets and calls on social media for for what you believe would be better representation for Albertans. I, I just asked uh, outgoing city councilor Michael Walters out of Edmonton, what matters most? Uh, what do these two mayors in particular, but mayors across the province need to do right now to be effective. He goes, relationships, relationships, relationships. Mayor-elect So he essentially said the same thing. He says he's going to try to see things outside the lens of politics, which I'm not sure is possible, 
But is it fair to call it somewhat of an adversarial relationship between you and Alberta's premier right now? And if so, how do you approach that moving forward? I would say it's um, the absence of a relationship. And when you don't have a relationship, there's all kinds of, of things that are said and done. So I'm looking forward to actually engaging properly with this provincial government. Um, I know that uh, the economy is a major point of interest for them, as it is for us. So I hope we can understand that their role in supporting society by providing, um, you know, things like healthcare and childcare increases labor force participation. And that ultimately is what drives the economy. And I'm going to be happy to work with them on attracting talent to our city and to make sure that we are filling those vacancies and that we can get moving again in a positive direction. Uh, I've got to ask you about city councilor Sean Chu, who won last night amid a developing story that back in 1997, while he was a Calgary police officer, uh, he allegedly uh, sexually touched a minor, a 16 year old girl whom he had known through the course of an investigation for two years back when she was 14 in uniform with his firearm. He took the girl back to his home and what's been curiously and strangely described by some media outlets as a consensual interaction. Of course, she was a minor, so we know that that's not possible, but the story broke after advanced polling and Councillor Chu won his seat, his bid for re-election. There's no possible way that this guy can serve Calgarians in good faith as a counselor. But if you take a look at how it's written, you can't just knock him off your council. So as mayor, this is, I would say, your first real leadership challenge. How do you intend to handle it? My first request would be that um, Sean Chu understand the weight of what is before us and do the right thing and withdraw his name from standing for council. That would be the ideal situation. I, I still have faith in humanity and I hope that he understands what he needs to do here. If he does not, then we have a very important um, task in front of us as a council. And the disappointing thing is that we don't have a lot of powers. We will absolutely need to be working with our provincial counterparts to make sure that this is something that is addressed upfront because it cannot be the reputation of our council. Let me ask you about fluoride. Calgarians voted to bring it back. There's going to be fluoride in the water again after about eight years out. Uh, for people across the rest of the country that would look at this and, and be like, what's the big deal? You talk to people about fluoride. I know for a fact it's actually a really big deal. What do you make of the results last night? What does it mean for the city? I'm not surprised by the results. This is what we've seen in previous plebiscites as well. This is um, basically the, the tracking that we've had as members of council as we have engaged with both the, you know, pro and against sides of the argument. So, you know, the people have spoken yet again. Um, what will be interesting now is to discuss with the chief medical officer of health the best way to go about ensuring that it's the highest grade of fluoride. And again, talking about the financial burden for fluoridation in our water system. How would you describe to people across the country, people outside Calgary that'll hear or see this interview, the dynamic of this new council for people that are trying to get a handle on what's, you know, I mean, what's, what's the council 
that's going to be steering Calgary into these next four years, which are incredibly important. Everybody knows that the role that Calgary has played as a corporate headquarters and as the driver of an economic engine uh, when it comes to Western Canada. What's the vibe of this council that you'll be overseeing as far as you can tell based on the election results last night? Well, based on the election results and the conversations that I've had with candidates over the last nine months or so, I'm extremely optimistic. We've got a lot of people that have been heavily engaged in their communities over the years. These are folks that really care about pulling Calgary forward. And I'm excited to be able to build a team um, and give leadership positions to people who I know will be able to perform. And um, I'm just looking forward to making sure that we have a common vision that we are all striving to achieve. I'm, I'm happy with this new council. So first order of business, I asked Mayor-elect Sohi the same thing, not not like a, uh, you know, sort of a nice phone call or something. I'm talking about something you're going to sink your teeth into, something that is Mayor-elect Gondek's top priority. What's going to be the first thing across your desk? We have had the opportunity to declare uh, climate emergency for years We have had various um, documents presented to us as a council, and I think we've had more than enough time to review them. So let's get serious. Let's declare this and let's start going after some of the capital that we will see flow in once we make a bold move like that. It is a bold move. And I don't have to tell you about how even a a phrase like climate emergency can ripple through a downtown core. Do you have to find a balance as the mayor of a city that's that's seen itself uh, flourish uh, because of oil and gas revenue? Do you have to be careful about the words you use or are we past that? Do people misunderstand where Calgary and business leaders are at right now? I don't believe that talking about a climate emergency and oil and gas are mutually exclusive ideas. I think as a matter of fact, we've forgotten what we're good at. We are very good at energy production, and we are also leaders in innovative ways to practice energy production. We became fixated on that end product being oil and gas. So let's move past the outputs and start talking about the processes again. And let's put ourselves on the map as a city that is the absolute leader in a transitioning economy. And let's show the world that by using innovation and technology, we can come up with sustainable, greener, cleaner solutions across all of our business sectors. That's the kind of message we need to set. Um, You know, we don't need to be hung up on what it is we're producing. Let's talk about the ways that we get there. I saw an interesting note from uh, uh, columnist McLean's writer, Jason Markusoff, widely respected in the industry yesterday that pointed out that nine of 15 uh, successful campaigns in the city of Calgary, including yours, uh, were supported by the political action committee, Calgary's future, uh, a union backed pack. Does that send an interesting message? Well, it was kind of an interesting message for me, too. I mean, they didn't come up with um, a mayoral candidate that they were going to support until I think two weeks out. And it happened to be me. I think they didn't find someone to fall in love with and they ended up looking at their best possible option. And so they provided that endorsement. It was interesting to listen to competitors talk about the money that would flow from this endorsement. Uh, it was not that kind of a situation. Um, You know, you can't accept money from a third-party advertiser. It was nice that they believe I am supportive of labor and I'm looking forward to working with them. Sandra's watching us live right now. She says in our chat on YouTube, I never thought I'd be excited by the words climate emergency, 
but but thank you madam mayor that from sandra i don't know where she's watching from but we sure appreciate her tuning in also very much appreciate you granting us uh, this first interview and exclusive it really means a lot to us uh, mayor-elect gondek and we look forward to future conversations seeing how you put your stamp on a city that i don't have to tell you is near and dear to my heart have a great rest of your day your first day big one thank you thank you so much for having me on and thank you calgary you got it that's Calgary's mayor-elect, Dr. Jody Gondek. I love that. I never thought I'd be excited by the words climate emergency. Sandra, I know what you mean. So there you have it. A bit of a sense of the priorities of mayors-elect Sohi and Gondek. Some great p- political analysis. And, and we want to get to what you have to say as well. Uh, you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com and of course sarah hoyles the producer of the show keeping an eye on our hashtag as well real talk rj that's the best way to get in touch with us on twitter if you want to do it live in the moment of course we're always keeping an eye on that if you're going to be making your way out of town and if you happen to be flying out of edmonton's international airport we want to recommend jet set parking You can check them out online. Make your reservation right now at jetsetparking.com. Get this. If you're ready for a dose of sunshine, why not choose nonstop service from Edmonton to Hollywood Burbank this summer? While you're taking advantage of that new flight or any travel by the end of 2022, not the end of this year, not in eight weeks from now, the end of 2022, if you book it ahead of time at jetsetparking.com using the promo code REALTALK, you can park for eight dollars a day that's right eight dollars a day to park at jet set parking they're locally owned you'll love them make sure you book at least one day in advance any travel before 2022 with the promo code real talk at jetsetparking.ca we also wanted to let you know how excited we are to introduce you to our wine sponsor this month That's right. If it's one of those mornings where you're feeling like, you know what? Coffee can wait till tomorrow. The sweet taste of electoral success in this instance may taste like La Crema Sonoma Chardonnay, for example. If you're feeling like it's a day to kick it off with some of the finest grapes ever produced, may we recommend our October wine sponsors at La Crema. You can find them anywhere you find great wine or online at lacrema.com. A lot of people love what they're doing because of their commitment to land stewardship and water conservation. You know their entire winery is powered by solar energy, those Tesla batteries. You can read all about it on their website. And of course, you want to check out what they've got that's new in the roster, including their brand new higher-end single vineyard, La Crema Pinot Noir, and the La Crema Russian River Chardonnay. I've tried it myself. It's fabulous. And you can find it anywhere you get your wine, whether that's wine and beyond, Costco liquor stores. And remember, if you don't find La Crema where you buy your wine, you can ask for it. Ask them to bring it in. In just about 10 minutes time, we're going to talk to retired NHLer, Bernie Saunders. He's got a new book out, and I'm looking forward to picking his brain. It's tough subject matter. He talks about the league, the sport that didn't love him black. That's right. The book is called Shut Out. The former Quebec Nordiques book comes out today, as a matter of fact, and we're grateful that he's joining us 
to have a frank conversation in about 10 minutes time about being black in the world of professional hockey. How much has changed in the 40, 45 years or so since Bernie laced him up? Why did he hold a ceremony to dump his skates for good, at least at the time? And how does he feel about his kids playing that sport? That interview coming up. You know, there are a lot of storylines that we take a look at. And of course, today, we wanted to present you with the winner's circle. We wanted to talk to the mayor's elect in the two biggest cities, those with victorious campaigns. Right now, I'd like to talk about the Edmonton mayoral candidate that lost. It's no secret that it's personal between Mike Nickel and myself. Back at the beginning of September of last year, I took issue with his online behavior and the social media behavior of his staff. This was after he faced a sanctioning hearing from Edmonton City Council. You remember this. I mean, this guy was a burr under the saddle of Edmonton City Council for the last four years. Oftentimes on votes that would be unanimous, it was Councillor Nichols' vote that was the no. Very rarely on principle, he led council in inexcused absences, and he, as a matter of fact, was at the very bottom of the pile when it came to councillors' contributions to committees and other extracurricular involvements. He's a guy that just, quite frankly, didn't show up. And it rubbed me the wrong way. It rubbed me how he would bully Councillor Andrew Knack in particular, maybe the classiest guy in Canadian politics, a landslide win, a re-election bid for Councillor Knack last night, by the way, too. And so you know the story. I referred to Mike Nichols' staffer, Matthew Alltime, as a chimpanzee typing out idiotic tweets, and, and that's when the shit hit the fan. That's when Councillor Nickel implied that I was speaking to a staffer, a person of color, that my comment was racist. He called for me to be fired from 630 Chad, the radio station I was on. And, and that's when Member of Parliament Conservative Carrie Diot piled on. I was facing it on two fronts, plus, of course, interference and involvement from another level of government. A guy who currently holds office in Alberta right now. You know exactly who I'm talking about. So last night I was keeping a keen eye on the election results. Of course, last September and before that on multiple occasions, I let my listeners know that it was obvious Mike Nickel would seek the mayor's chair. And it was obvious to me that he was going to lose because he lacks the ability to build team. He lacks the ability to build consensus. He doesn't motivate people. He denigrates people. He attacks people. He bullies people. And I was thrilled last night to see his potential capped. It was capped when Edmontonians said they're not going to vote for a guy that doesn't show up for mayoral forums, that blocks people on Twitter. Mike Nickel, of course, lost last night. You know that. And when he stepped to the podium for his concession speech, here's what he had to say. As you are aware, Edmonton has many, many problems. And this campaign has brought those problems to light. And the voice of thousands who have spoken to return to the status quo, I've got to be honest, you're in for some tough times ahead. How delusional do you have to be to believe that the election results in Edmonton last night were status quo? A guy by the name of Eric reached out to me and he said, please dedicate at least some time to addressing Mike Nichols comment about the status quo last night. 
Eric said, because I, too, am tired of Edmonton's revolving door of brown immigrant bus driver mayors. Cheryl reached out on Twitter and said, I'm curious to know how status quo manifests itself with the incumbents losing four of them, gender parity on council and a diverse mayor and council. It doesn't look like status quo to me. Mike Nichols upset that he and his team of stodgy old guys that lack vision, that lack incentive, that lack an understanding of the priorities of the people around them. He's upset that they lost. And I'm sure that he's having a difficult time processing it this morning. To forecast that Edmonton's in for a world of hurt without offering even one conciliatory note to the mayor-elect, so he last night. Well, that was all we needed to see. I've been telling you for quite some time now, at a high cost, quite frankly, that Mike Nickel did not deserve your vote for many reasons, that Mike Nickel would be dangerous in Edmonton's mayor's chair. And yeah, I'm reveling in this. Yeah, I was having some fun on Twitter last night. Yeah, it's nice to see a guy take a bit of a shit kicking when he ensured that you took your own a year ago. But when both of us woke up this morning, one of us had one of Canada's top rated podcasts and one of us is in the breadline, unemployed, with his pal, Kerry Diot, by the way, both of them voted out at federal and then municipal levels over the past two months. The taste is sweet, my friends. I'm not going to lie. But more than anything, and this is the last I'll talk about it, probably, I'm grateful that positivity and respect and transparency and vision won out last night. You can send me your thoughts to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Of course, Eat Your Words, presented by Prairie Catering, is coming up tomorrow. And then we'll no doubt have a lively edition of Trash Talk coming up on Friday's show, presented by the team at Local Waste. Right now, I wanted to remind you that our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are preparing for Miracle Treat Day. It's coming up on October 28th, and that's the day when the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road are going to be dedicating all of the proceeds from Blizzard sold to the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Now, I pick my words carefully because I want to make sure that I don't lead you to believe that they're donating the profits. They're donating the proceeds, which means that every single cent that they collect is going to the kids at the Stollery. It's an amazing commitment that over the past number of years has meant six-figure donations. You can pop into the stores, you can hit them up in the drive-thru, you can grab one or two or four blizzards, or if you really want to make somebody's day, maybe it's in a workplace, maybe it's kids, whatever it is, they're also taking advance orders, and if the orders are big enough, you'll have to call them for details, they'll be willing to deliver. That's right, the Dairy Queens at Palisades Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Miracle Treat Day is coming up on October 28th. Let's turn the page. Let's take a look at a new book out today by Bernie Saunders, a retired professional hockey player who saw action in two different NHL seasons for the Quebec Nordiques. 
Bernie quit hockey in his 20s. And a lot of people wondered why, noting that he had great potential, still had excellent opportunities ahead of him, much to accomplish on and off the ice as just the fifth black hockey player to lace him up in the National League. But it was not to be. And that's the story contained in the pages of Shut Out, the game that did not love me black. It's an honor to welcome Bernie Saunders to the program. Thanks for making time for us and a good morning to you. Good morning, Ryan, and thank you for having me. This is a big day. Your book's out today. This has been obviously a huge journey for you, not just the putting the book together, but everything that led up to it. How are you feeling? When you woke up this morning, how are you feeling? Really nervous, uh, Ryan. If you know me, I'm a really um, personal person. I don't like the spotlight. If you know my family, my brother was John Saunders uh, of ESPN fame and uh, City TV fame. He was the media person of the family. I like to uh, be be in the background, but um, the events that have happened over the last few years just have, have you know got got me going type of thing. I just felt it was time for me to speak out. This was, uh, I, I'm sure, a story your story that will resonate uh, with many people that have faced discrimination of their own, whether it's in, in professional hockey or whether it's at any level of sport or elsewhere. But do you think that your book is going to surprise some people that don't have that lived experience? What, what impact are you expecting your testimony to have? I, I really think it will surprise people because people talk about racism almost like it's an abstract entity type of a thing. Um, but what I try to do in the book is put the fan or the reader at the ice level because I was this sweet, innocent, young Canadian kid just trying to uh, make it to my uh, chosen profession, which was the National Hockey League. And I faced racism at every, every, at every level. And so kind of inspired by the events of today, the, to tell you the truth, the thing that really got me going was the George Floyd incident and the, you know, the Derek Chauvin knee on the neck type of thing. And then I translate that to hockey. And I see incidents that, that have happened in hockey um, recently. And uh, I just felt it was time for me to, to come forward with this story. Bernie, did this, I mean, the racism that you faced in sport, was that the reality from the very beginning? I mean, do you remember, I imagine you do, your early years as, as a young boy learning to skate, you know, your, your first game of, of minor hockey. I mean, was this a reality all the way through? In, in my memory, to tell you the truth, when John and I first started playing hockey, of course, we played house league hockey. Um, there wasn't much at that level. But as soon as we got competitive, we, we joined travel teams. Um, as soon as we got to that level, the the, the AA and AAA level, um, it kind of came on uh, very, very quickly at, at, at that time. Um, and then, interestingly, as I advanced throughout my career, it kind of accelerated at, 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 at every level. And the thing that was... Um, important for me to say in the book is that I knew being a trailblazer that I was going to have to face racism in, in, in a sport that obviously was, was dominated by uh, the, the white majority. But what wore me down was um, it eventually crept into my own locker room. And as a player, I just felt like I, I was living on an island type of thing. And when that happened, uh, I just felt it was time to turn away and go on with the rest of my life. As a young man, I mean, aspiring to make it, uh, you know, dreaming of, of playing pro hockey at any point, did you consider quitting before 
you had that opportunity to go pro? I mean, what did it take for you when it came to digging deep, when it when it came to rising above all of this in, in somewhat, I'm sure, an unimaginable circumstance? How did you do it for so long? You, when you're doing something you love, you, you never think of quitting. Like, and I, I don't feel like I quit, to tell you the truth, um, and that's also important for me. Um, again, there's a certain level of understanding, you know, when you're the lone black player that that's playing a sport that there's going to be some things that you, that you're, that you're going to face. And so I never felt that um, I wanted to quit. Um, but, but like I said earlier, when it crept in my own, into my own locker room, I just felt kind of disgust, disgusted from the game. And what happened with me is when I finally managed to the NHL, um, you know, I'm wearing a Quebec, Quebec Nordic uniform and kind of made it to the mount, mountain type of thing. And I felt like this wasn't the mountain I aspire for. You know, this, this was not the NHL that I, I had uh, saw in my dreams for my entire life. And so I was turned, to, turned off by that. And so I just kind of turned the page and went on into a, into a successful business career. Well, we're talking about the years 1979 to 1981 in particular uh, with the Quebec Nordiques. I'm assuming this was not a reality limited to that particular franchise. Uh, what was it like being a black player in the National Hockey League in the late 1970s, early 1980s? Well, I don't want, I don't want to uh, pick on franchises because for, with my experiences, it was more the opposition. You know, it was almost routine to get something for the opposition on the ice. And as, as, as a band playing, a black man playing a team sport, I had to rise above it. I couldn't drop my gloves every time I heard it because obviously that would um, punish my own team. And so uh, for, for my experience was um, the opposite opposing team was always difficult. And also, as I wrote it right in the book, um, the opposition ranks were really difficult. Uh, and I, I was this quiet, shy person that didn't want to draw any attention to myself. So I think I was hyper aware of it. But, you know, I'd be out there on the ice and that's all I would hear would be I would, talk about in the book is, is it's just raining on me, um, all, all these racial slurs and so on and so forth and drawing attention to myself, which I did not want. And so the, the Nordics uh, story is a little bit different and you can you can kind of read into that what you want because I don't think I was treated 100% fairly, but stuff happens. Like everybody's career, you know, stuff happens. It takes a lot of um, uh, stars to align to wear an NHL jersey. So um, yes, there was some racism there, but there's also just some misfortune, et cetera. But what I want to talk about in the, in the book is just my experience out there on the ice uh, living as a black man playing in a white man's game. Bernie, we see evidence, uh, unfortunately, uh, that, that racism continues to exist in sport. We've seen horrific comments. Uh, we've seen horrific actions uh, from fans and players alike. Uh, black players in particular targeted in the National Hockey League. I can think of ugly incidents involving uh, winger Wayne Simmons. Goaltender Kevin Weeks has talked a lot about it. Uh, here in our home city of Edmonton, uh, following a disappointing and, and brief playoff run uh, last year, Indigenous star defenseman Ethan Bear uh, faced his own horrific racism online. Has has and that's not even to mention, by the way, misogynistic and homophobic slurs and all of the things that hockey lovers like me hate to have to acknowledge remain in that sport that so many of us love. Has anything really changed in the NHL over the course of the last forty years? Well, the happy news is yes, because when, when I played, Ryan, it happened multiple times every game. 
No, it, it was just kind of ruthless when, when, I, when I played. And I just had to kind of grin and bear it and play, play the sport that I love. And so now on, on the positive side, I, I think it's great that when something happens, it makes major headlines and, 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 and people talk about it. And, um, it, you know, it hasn't been eradicated, but, but at least the incidents have, have been diminished. But with that said, um, I'm 65 years old. I'm not satisfied with the pace of change. And so the reason why I came out was to try to hopefully accelerate the pace of change and um, make things a little bit you know, easier for my black fellow players in, in the NHL. Yeah, I mean, what would that look like to accelerate the pace of change? What what actions specifically would you like to see either from from the commissioner, Gary Bettman, or or from leaders in sport, from players that hold positions of leadership in sport, individual franchises, fans? What would it look like, Bernie? You know, what's interesting, Ryan, is is that all of the above, obviously, all of the above, we you have to you have to approach it at every level. But I think the next step for the NHL is the players. You know, the NHL has a staff of people that's working on the issue and it's a very difficult, challenging issue to, to um, combat. But I think from a player level, I use the example of P.K. Subban, and I talk about this in, in, in the book, in that P.K. Subban is guilty of acting black, in my opinion. Now, people think that he's over-exuberant and all this stuff and whatnot. I just see a black man just, just trying to express himself and enjoy the game that he loves. And um, in my opinion, the NHL is a conformist league and they want players that come in and basically act act uh, under the standard protocol, which drives me nuts in hockey. If you compare it to other sports, football as an example, on TV, they will play replays of the scoring celebration, you know, because it, it, it's so fun to watch type of thing. In hockey, you got to do the same thing. You score, you raise your stick. Then you go. Then you go to the bench and you know tap everybody in, in the same same um, ceremony. And if you do something different from that, you're chastised and you know and ridiculed and whatnot. And so, I, I just think that the, the hockey has to kind of take a look at its some, some of its unwritten rules and and change some of those things. But um, Gary Bettman and his staff can do all they want. But I think that the change has to come from from the players level. And until that happens, I don't think you're going to see much change. All the other stuff, though, parenthetic, all the other stuff, again, has been lessened. Yes, there's still incidents of uh, racial slurs, et cetera, but it's not like it was in the 80s when, when I played. But again, I think for the game to move, to move forward, they've got to, um, they've got to change from a, from a player level. Uh, back in 1980-81, uh, in that in that season, you write about this in your book. If you're, if you're just tuning in, live streaming us on Mixler, we're talking to Bernie Saunders, whose new book drops today. Shut out the game that did not love me black. Uh, during the Quebec Nordiques uh, training camp in 1980, a scrimmage tournament, uh, you led all scorers with eight goals. You finished tied for second on the team, uh, tied with future Hall of Famer Michel Goulet, who people know well, obviously. But despite that production, you were cut uh, before the Nordiques played a single exhibition game, an official one. Um, in particular, journalist Albert Ladassur wrote an article i'm sure you're familiar with it obviously the dismissal of saunders a surprise and he wrote that several of your teammates thought that you were the victim of an injustice after that season wrapped you held a ceremony with some of your friends essentially i guess grieving your departure from hockey at just 25 would you tell us about that yeah it was actually what happened there was, I again, I was this naive young kid just trying to make it to the NHL, and I did really well in the AHL, like 
pretty much tore it up. And uh, when I got to training camp, as you mentioned, I, I led all, all players in scoring. I led, you know, it was the first year of Peter Stastny and Anton Stastny. In, in that particular um, environment, uh, Peter and Anton tied for, for first in scoring. I was third behind them, and I, I, I had the most goals. And so I just felt like I'd done everything to, to make the team. And uh, when they cut me at that point, it just devastated me. You know, it just absolutely devastated me. And yes, at the time, I felt uh, there were there, there racial causes. Now, years later, I, I kind of toned back on, on, on that belief. Um, and then the next year, basically, excuse me, that season, what happened was when they cut me, they didn't have a farm team. So they, they sent me to Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, on loan to the Montreal Canadiens uh, uh, farm system. Halifax has Guy Carbono and Danny Dao, they're, they're just stacked. And so the Nordics that they, they loaned um, to the, the Voyageurs pretty much sat on the bench all year. And so that year, my numbers went from, you know, one of the top AHL scores to basically a fourth line, nothing type of a season. Then the, the next year, I go back to camp thinking, well, they must know that my, my numbers were artificially reduced. Um, but they sent me to Fredericton that year uh, pretty early in training camp. And that's when I said, you know what, I'm done with this because I, I, I've proven I can score. I, when I played in the NHL, I, I did well, I did well um, there as well. And I went back to the IHL and played a year uh, for the Kalamazoo Wings. And after that season, which picks up where your question started, is that after that year, I basically burned my skates and um, threw, threw them in, into the river because I was so, so disappointed with the way the, the game had treated me. That's, that's, I mean, that's not a small thing, right? I mean, the, the symbolism of, of someone that, that, you know, at, at your level of ability um, and, and potential to burn their skates and to throw them in the river, did it make you feel any better at the time? You know, it's a great question because I, it, it did. And um, I really felt I was over, you know, I went on with my life type of thing. And, and uh, I think ritual and ceremony is good, but having written this book, a lot has come out of me. And I, I, I think like, well, maybe Bernie didn't get total closure. So this, this book has been helpful. Right. The other thing that I, that I did um, that was even more important for me that than uh, throwing this case in the river was, that last year when I played in the IHL, I knew that was the first year I ever played where, you know, I didn't have NHL dreams hovering in the background. And so I wanted to symbolize or do something for myself that season um, that would, would uh, kind of soothe the pain. And so that year, every time I scored, I raised my, I raised my basically glo hockey glove in, in the symbol of, a, of a, the black power salute um, for that, that entire year, basically to say to myself, Bernie, you know, you're mistreated type of thing. You love the game, but um, I wanted to do something uh, for, for myself or Bernie Saunders. Bernie, your, your, uh, your, your sons, uh, Jonathan and Sean, uh, yeah. played at a high level of hockey themselves at, at Miami University in Ohio and University of Massachusetts, uh, respectively, two, two great hockey schools. Uh, you don't get there without the support of your parents. Uh, was that a difficult journey for you to, to, to see your sons develop an interest in hockey, develop a love for hockey, or did you see it as maybe an opportunity to impact change at a different level from a different angle? <laughs> Hate to be uh, a boring guest, but all of the above, absolutely all of the above. But when, when they first started, Ryan, I didn't want them to play because my experiences were so difficult and so deep and so hurtful. I did not want my sons to play, but I was coaching at the time. My oldest son, Jonathan, saw me coaching, was always taken to the ice rink. 
And so, of course, he fell in love with the game. I tell the story in the book where there's a game where Jonathan is uh, maybe 12 years old, 14, that range. And uh, he he basically went through what I went through where the, the end bomb was dropped on him. I coached him his entire entire career not to react as an individual when that happened, you know, to stay within the confines of the, the team sport and and beat them on the scoreboard like a lot of my fellow Blacks talk about, Black hockey players talk about. He lost it, got into a fight, got suspended, and after that game, I basically went into, lock, went into the locker room and just bawled my eyes out because it was difficult for me to see my son go through the same thing that, that I was – that had gone through on countless occasions. But the postscript to the, to the story is that the next day we received letters, well, calls and later letters of apology from the opposing team. And that really touched my heart because, as I mentioned at the outset, I could see the world moving forward. You know, I've never heard, you know, an apology and um, received letters of apology or whatnot when, when, when I played. So it, it made me feel a lot better but I also say this in the book, unfortunately, so I went from a level of optimism, you know, to seeing the world change, but the last, you know, four or five years, I've seen the world kind of change in the back, in, in, you know, in the reverse direction. And that's been disappointing to me to, to see and my optimism has turned to, sorry to say, some pessimism. And Bernie, to be clear, you're, you're not just talking about the world limited to the ice or the ice sheet of professional hockey. You're talking about the world in general. The rule in general, a perfect example is um, the other day, I live in South Carolina right now. The other day, I go to the driving range. I'm just on the driving range, and it's a beautiful afternoon, and, and, and you know, hitting balls, which I, which I love to do because I've always wanted to have sport in my life. And I basically get accosted by this guy. I, I, I'm just, he, he just almost wanted just to start a fight because I'm a black man, and you know, my, my heart rate goes up and so and so forth, and I, I try to be calm and cool about it, and Finally, the, the guy um, took off and drove away. Fortunately, there's this, these other two guys are are, are watching and and um, they both basically say, "Oh, geez, we, we we were worried about you and we would have had your back," type of thing. And, and so I was glad that I had some support. But yeah, just as a black man, I'm 65 years old and I've just seen a lot, a lot, and been through a lot, both through business and hockey, etc. And yeah, some of the events of the last last four to five years just basically. Um, really bothered me. And that's why, although I'm a very private person, I'm not good at media and doing all this stuff, but I felt, Bernie, it's time for you to you know, kind of put on your big man pants and, 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 and make a statement. Bernie, for, for parents of, of young hockey players uh, or aspiring hockey players um, that, that may or will face barriers uh, based on race, ethnicity, religion, gender, sexuality, or otherwise, would you encourage those parents to allow their child to explore and potentially fall in love with the sport? Or would you have hesitations based on what you're describing as this trend you've observed in the world in the last four or five years? Uh, Complicated question, but I I have hesitation. I just got to tell you, I have a hesitation because hockey says it's for everybody, right? They've got the slogan, hockey's for everyone. Hockey is not for everyone. Hockey is for a certain conformist model. If, if, so if you have a, you know, a minority kid that fits that conformist model, which I did, by the way, I was, I was a 
play by the rules type of guy. And, and, uh, you know, I barely even celebrated when I scored, scored a goal because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. So if, if you show me a kid like that that loves the game, then I say, yeah, absolutely go for it. But, Ryan, what happens if, a say, a Deion Sanders-like character comes to hockey and, and, and wants, wants to play the game? That kid is just going to be berated at every level, from the players, from the fans, you know, from the system and whatnot. So hockey is not for everybody. Hockey is for a certain model, conformist model. And if you fall within that framework, that's great. But if you're asking me to take a kid from South Carolina that's outspoken and, you know, maybe just demonstrative and say, put this kid in a, in a hockey uniform, I say that that's cruel. I just wouldn't do that. Yeah, you see evidence of it. And I, don't, and, and I think that, I mean, I guess, Bernie, let me just say that I, this is my opinion, but, but I think some of it is really obvious. Um, you take a player like a P.K. Subban, who would probably be as close uh, to, to the type of player that you described as, as a skilled bombastic gregarious confident player uh pk most especially during his time in montreal would skate around guys i mean that the sort of savardian spinorama and score big goals with his big shot but his his fashion off the ice and his involvement in media and his his inevitable career as a commentator coming up his 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 posts on social media and his 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 public relationships most most recently with with ski champion lindsey vaughn have all been the subject of criticism that other hockey players quite frankly do not face and i don't see a lot of people directly spelling out and hurling racial insults at pk suban but i can't help but suspect that a whole lot of that is coming from that exact spot would you agree i i, I totally agree i totally agree and as a black man i can say it i I just think that P.K. Subban is a black man who behaves like himself. You know, he's not trying to be showy or whatever. That's, that's who he is. And what the NHL is saying, what the players are saying, you can't do that here. You have to be somebody else. And to P.K. Subban's credit, he kind of fights it off and says, you know, it's no big deal. But I got to tell you, Ryan, I, I don't see the same player you know, playing today that you just mentioned that was playing in Montreal. I think this kid could have been a marketing bonanza for the league and taken the league to a, a different level. The other thing about Bernie Saunders is that I'm a Canadian, uh, you know, I, but I've, I've lived in the United States for a lot of years and I lived all over the States. And so Canadians see you know, the game under a certain framework and that's wonderful. And if you want to isolate hockey to just Canada, then you should do that. But if you want to expand it to this U.S. market, which is just bonanza, you need P.K. Subban type of characters uh, out there. And they get squelched. And again, uh, the conformers in, in, in the game love it because uh, he's not behaving the way other players behave. But I, I just see as a person that's lived in the, in the States for a lot of years, um, lost opportunity, lost revenue, everything. And, and the irony is, if you look at golf, the irony is, is that if P.K. Subban had been allowed to kind of um, play the play the game he, the way he wanted to, um, like Tiger Woods, whatnot, he would have filled the other players' pockets as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really great point. I want to ask you this in closing, Bernie, uh, because I know that a lot of, of parents and coaches are going to put this interview in front of their players, uh, in front of their kids, and. 
I want to talk about the power of teammates or, or the potential power of teammates. Was there a teammate or, or were there several through the course of your career that did not face the racism that you faced, but felt as you did about it and that were supportive of you and that took positions of leadership either in or outside the dressing room on or off the ice? Simple answer is no, because when I played, you, you're afraid to bring up the subject. I was also fear, always fearful that, man, if I, if I make a big thing over this, I, I could get kicked off the team. And so that's one of the things that was difficult for me. And, I, and as I've done some research on other players, they go through the same thing. Is you basically suffer in silence because there's nobody to talk to. Um, you don't want to raise it with the other players. You, the coaches don't understand it, et cetera. Uh, in my experience, the only people I would the only people I would talk to uh, about this subject was the media. There, there's always you know a home press person that, that covered the team, and they would see it, and they would always ask questions and whatnot. And so we would strike up a, a, a friendship, and uh, every time I saw the person, we would we would uh, have a conversation about it. But it's one of the most difficult things with with um, this subject is that you're an island. Basically, you're you're playing a team sport. You want to fit into that team and just be normal, but you can't not stand out. I really appreciate your candor, Bernie. Um, I think that that a lot of times we need reality checks and to understand based on what you're telling us today, that this is not just a story of a reality 40 years ago, but it's a challenge to each one of us, hockey fans, hockey parents, hockey players, and people outside the sport. Uh, quite frankly, uh, is an important message for us to hear. Congratulations on uh, the release of your new book today. Shut out the game that did not love me black. A hockey memoir by Bernie Saunders uh, with Barry Meisel. We appreciate your availability today, and it's, it's been a real honor to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. You got it. You can find that book uh, anywhere you find good books uh, published by Harper Collins. Again, shut out. The game that did not love me black. I expect that we're going to get some emails from that one. And I look forward to hearing it from. I mean, these are these are are really difficult conversations to have. Right. To acknowledge that uh, that a sport that you may love. Perpetuates a culture that's got an ugly underbelly. And we do see some some positive movement on some fronts and we see some positive initiatives and some exciting ones, quite frankly. But at the same time, if we're honest with ourselves, we're faced with reminders every single pro season, let alone what's happening outside that glaring spotlight of the NHL. Those reminders that we've still got a long way to go. And I appreciate uh, courageous voices like Bernie Saunders and, and also those of you that will no doubt tell us your stories. And it doesn't have to be just limited to hockey or just limited to sport. What's a barrier that you faced? What's a challenge that you face? How are you hitting it head on? Who's assisting you or supporting you in that? Or what does the lack of supports look like or feel like? The more that you're in touch with us, the more that you share your personal experiences, wear your heart on your sleeve, so to speak, the more we have our finger on the pulse of real life, the more we're able to bring you real talk. 
every weekday morning. We're also able to do it because we have an amazing roster of sponsors like the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. October is their biggest sale of the year. You can find them online via the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. They've got over 650 vehicles in stock at Sherwood Dodge, as an example, for the first time in 14 months. They've been waiting to reload their stock, and right now they've got more than 140 Grand Cherokees. They've got more than 300 Dodge Ram 1500s. They've got more than 75 Jeep Gladiators. They got the Wranglers. You know, these rides everybody's been looking for. You know, you've been browsing the pre-owned market. If you've wanted a new vehicle in the last year, no longer the case. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge can share inventories too. So you've got double the opportunity to find exactly what you're looking for. You let them know you heard about them here on Real Talk. Our friends at Westworld Computers make sure that our show is on the air every weekday. And that's in part to the Mac lineup that they custom put together for us. We said, well, we're going to need a couple of MacBook Pros for Hoyles and myself. Sam's going to need the big iMac. I'm going to need an iPad here and my iPhone. And I was thinking the other day, maybe an I, an Apple Watch. I don't have the Apple Watch. I don't, you, don't, you don't have one either, do you? I, I have never had a smartwatch. They're really cool. They're I love super one. cool. They're super cool. Yeah. Hoyles, have you ever had a smartwatch? No, but all my uh, all my family members do. They do. Yeah. You know, everybody tells me it's it's not. I've, I've always thought like, what are you gonna like? Are you like Max Smart from like Get Smart? You know, I mean, it's a reference from the it's back in the day. Our our, our more uh, finely aged real talkers will get that reference. But it just, I was like, so what are you like taking calls and getting text messages on your yeah. on your watch? But it has all the the fitness stuff. Yeah, that's what people love is like the step counters and the heart rate stuff. And while they've got that Series Seven Apple Watch, you can shop online at Westworld.ca or go see them in person. They've got all the proper precautions in place. And don't forget, you can book your service appointment online as well. And finally, today we wanted to remind you that our friends at Friesen Brothers, sixteen locations across the province of Alberta, are ready to celebrate Oktoberfest. That's right, Oktoberfest is coming back on October 23rd from 4 to 8 p.m. It's a dinner with dessert available at select locations in Edmonton, Stony Plain, Fort Saskatchewan, Drumheller, Hinton Hill, and Peace River. A shout out to Peace River this morning. You can find out more and book your spot at the Friesen Brothers Oktoberfest dinner by checking them out online at Friesen.com. Before we go today, and I know that there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot of ground we could cover and, and we could we could keep celebrating some election results. We could keep lamenting some election results. Not everybody votes the same. Some of you I know are really disappointed by the way that things went last night. The time will tell how this all plays out. But there's been another story that we've been keeping an eye on. And, and this one kind of blew my mind. Did you see this statement from Ontario's premier? Doug Ford. Did you hear this statement from Doug Ford talking about immigrants to Canada, talking about new Canadians? I know this is an engaged audience, so I'm, I'm sure that the majority of have you have already, you've already heard this, but, but, but I asked Sam to pull a tweet. I saw this on Twitter. Somebody captured this on their phone, but this was Ontario's premier, Doug Ford, just a short time ago. Have a listen. And so, folks, if you have some hardworking people, I just have one criteria. 
You come here like every other new Canadian has come here. You work your tail off. If you think you're coming to collect the dole and sit around, not going to happen. Go somewhere else. You want to work? Come here. We have so much work. We can't keep up. What? Huh? I mean, that's like the, the kind of thing that drunk Uncle Larry says, right? That the family Thanksgiving while, he, while he's outside crushing his 11th buck of beer, standing over the turkey deep fryer. And the rest of the family kind of winces and says, Uncle Larry, you don't you don't even say that. I mean, Uncle Larry, this is the premier of Ontario, of Canada's most populated province. You know what it reminded me of? And, and, and I knew and I knew that the minute that I checked in on our live chat, it's about to fire up right now because you knew real talkers that we were going to bring this up before the day was through. You knew that this had to be addressed. And I know a lot of you, like Ryan right now, says that's par for the course for, for Doug. And, and Tony says that's typical Ford. And, and Sharon says the real Doug Ford shows his colors. You know, Julie says it was drunk Uncle Dougie. I should maybe change it. Drunk Uncle Larry has served us well, but drunk Uncle Dougie kind of works too. And I know many of you are, 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 are going to say, you know, I mean, it, but let me point out, that this does not deserve a pass and this cannot be allowed to slide. It's a really shitty comment. It's the same sort of comment that got Don Cherry fired from Hockey Night in Canada a while ago. And people will say every time I refer to you people or those people and they'll say that's what got Don Cherry canceled. It wasn't that there's nothing wrong with those words together. Right. Last night, mayors elect so he or Gonda could stand at the podium and say, you people are the reason I'm here. And they would all start cheering and celebrating and there'd be nothing wrong with those two words. But Don Cherry, of course, was talking about you people, you people who come here. Right. The land of milk and honey, you know, refusing to wear the poppy on Remembrance Day, which, quite frankly, by the way, was not a thing. Statistically speaking, the fact checks showed that new Canadians, that immigrant Canadians, as a matter of fact, observe Remembrance Day statistically either on par with or above the priorities of people who were born here, so to speak. But this isn't about Don Cherry, is it? It's about Premier Doug Ford, who essentially said the same thing yesterday, you know, that flies in the face of the reality that Canada's economy that Canada has been built on the backs of immigrants. And I know that there are deserving and important and legitimate conversations around indigenous people in Canada, and I'm not ignoring that as part of my commentary here. But if you look at the way that Canada has been built as a nation, including the railroad, including industry, including some of the small towns and who has sustained services in those small towns and who's taken on the less than desirable jobs in the big urban centers. Who is it? Who is it that shows up every single day? Who is it that was put at more risk through the course of this pandemic than anybody else? It was the people with meager, modest incomes, people that are marginalized as part of a culture, people that put their lives at risk and, to this point, continue to put their lives at risk to ensure that 
so many of us with so much privilege continue to enjoy the quality and standard of life that we have. It's because of people that see an open door to Canada as the biggest blessing they could possibly manifest in their entire life. It really reminded me of a comment from my former mayor growing up. He went on to become Alberta's Minister of the Environment, and then you may remember his time as Premier, Ralph Klein. You remember back in 1982 when Ralph Klein was talking about unemployed newcomers from Eastern Canada as the source of Calgary's crime problems? Said the then mayor of Calgary in 1982, quote, you're welcome to stay here a couple of weeks at government expense. But if you can't make it after that particular time, don't go out and rob our banks and convenience stores and mug our senior citizens and snatch their purses. Get the hell out of time. Get the hell out of town, said Klein at the time, referring to those Eastern Canadians as creeps and bums. He later, in retrospect, identified that or recalled that as one of the regrets of his long political career. And that was talking about Eastern Canadians that were born here. In the spirit of what we just heard from Bernie Saunders, has anything really changed in particular at the top in the halls of power with the people leading government? with the people rallying caucus, with the people occupying the corner offices in those halls of power. If nothing's really changed with regards to attitudes, let alone what we hear publicly, then why not? And what can we do about it? I know that Doug Ford is taking some public lashings here, and I suspect that voters in Ontario will add it to the list of things that they'll consider the next time that Ontario hosts a provincial election. But in the meantime, we're curious to know where your mind is at. When you heard that, whether it was here for the first time or before, what did it make you think about? I've shared my thoughts. We'd love to process yours. Starting on tomorrow's show, we invite you to be in touch with us. Take us up on our offer. We read every single email we receive. I'm looking forward to tomorrow's show. Reverend Michael Corrin, a nationally publicized columnist and author, is going to join us to talk about his new book, Rebel Christ. Why does Reverend Corrin believe Christianity's in crisis? Plus, a special edition of My Jasper Memories with Rob Meyerson. He's the former president of Blue Origin, an aerospace engineer. Does humanity have a future outside planet Earth? We'll find out. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Editorial Producer Sarah Hoyles, Technical Producer Sam Brooks, Managing Director Josh Dunford, Account Coordinator Tanya Franklin, Merchandise Operations Katie Cook-Chivers, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 